As we come to the scripture, let me ask you to please, uh, to please pray with me. Uh, Father in heaven, uh, we're humbled, really. Uh, before your word, we, we come uh, saying, teach us. Uh, we come saying that without you directing us, we have uh, no place to go. Without you defining us, we don't know who we are. And so we come now and we ask that you would, by your scripture, enable us um, to know who we are, to know what we're to do and how we're to do it, that we may delight in you, that is, worship you. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn please to Nehemiah in chapter 2. Nehemiah chapter 2, I want to read verse 9 through... uh, the end of chapter 2, all right? Nehemiah chapter 2, please. This is the word of God. Then I came, in the eye there is Nehemiah. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen, but when Sanballat and Horonite And Tobiah, the Ammonite servant, heard this. It displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me. And I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the Dragon Spring and to the Dung Gates, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. I went on to the fountain gates and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the nights by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gates and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we're in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat and the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard it, heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or right claim in Jerusalem. Now, we've taken up this ancient book 2,400 years ago. Um, and, and, and what we found here is this, this man, Nehemiah, has been called by God to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls uh, around the city. And it's quite amazing, really, that we find this particular Hebrew slave 
with no real power in and of himself. Again, as we've said, he couldn't leave without permission, uh, else he would be arrested. Uh, he was in a position, providentially, of, um, of, um, of, of, of trust with um, the king, Artaxerxes, because he was his cupbearer, he was his wine tester, he was the one that sort of was the last line of defense for the king's food and, uh, and to keep him alive. And so, and so there he was. And, and his job, his calling by God, was to rebuild these walls. And it was really more than that. At least the aim of it was more than that. Because having the walls rebuilt would bring honor to God, safety to God's people, but also, and this most important, would enable them to gather and worship and be the people of God. And so you remember, Nehemiah receives this word that the walls are down. Again, not to go back through all of the history, but they had been the people exiles in Babylon. When Cyrus, who had been appointed by God, the pagan king, conquered uh, Babylon, the Persians, they sent a remnant back into Jerusalem. That was their plan, Cyrus's plan, really God's plan to get the people back from exile. And when they returned from exile, they began to, to rebuild. They rebuilt the temple. And, and yet, uh, there were those who came against them as they rebuilt the walls. And the walls had been torn down and, and burned and all of that and not rebuilt. And so it made the, the, the city vulnerable. And it was such that the people couldn't really rebuild the city of Jerusalem, really rebuild their culture as the people of God, their identity as the people of God. And they were not safe. And God's honor, of course, uh, was besmirched because he was. this was the city of the great king. So how could it look like that? So the word comes to Nehemiah that the walls are down. It breaks his heart, you remember. And he begins to pray, not only pray, but over a four-month period of time, fast, mourn, and plan, as we came to know. And, and then providentially, he's with the king as he is quite often, testing the wine and giving it to the king and all of that. And parenthetically, and we can't get this little parenthesis out of our mind, and that is the queen was there. And and we don't know exactly what that means because we're not told, but it means something. That on this particular moment, this particular day, by the providential working of God, the queen is with the king. She wasn't always. And it's on that particular moment in time that the king observes that Nehemiah is sad. Now, you weren't allowed to be sad in the presence of the king because it said that he wasn't fun to be around if you were sad in his presence. And it was, it was kind of an insult to him. You're not, you don't know happy around me. And so the king noticed it. And, and, and there's a sense in which Nehemiah was in a very dangerous position because, uh, because the king noticed that he was sad. And so he took that moment in time. He'd been praying for four months, planning for four months to unleash on the king what it was that he was sad about. The walls around Jerusalem were down. And then the king got what Nehemiah was saying, how we don't know exactly from what's in the text. But he said, so what are you requesting, given that that's the situation? And Nehemiah said, I'm requesting that you allow me leave to go back and to rebuild the walls and that you'll finance it and protect us as we do it. And the king says, all right. And so then Nehemiah goes, that's where uh, we pick up our time here. And so Nehemiah has, has found himself providentially in this place with the king and receiving this calling of God and having his prayed. Now he leaves the, uh, uh, Susa and he goes to Jerusalem. 
And we can see that when he goes to Jerusalem, he goes with some fanfare. The king gave him some officers and horsemen. And we get a sense, don't miss this in this narrative, we get a sense that rebuilding the walls will not be that easy in the sense that there will be opposition. There was those, these three with the funny names, Sanballat, uh, Tobiah, um, uh, come and uh, they... And uh, they come and later on we read another one, uh, Geshem, the Arab. And they come and, and they're just appalled, really. I mean, th- there's more than just political opposition here. You have to read that into it. There, there's, 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 this, is, this is demonic. This is, this is a great opposition against God and his people. I mean, they're, they're, they're just appalled that anyone would come back and, uh, and, um, and seek the welfare of the people of Israel because they're nothing in these people's minds. Now, we'll get into them later when they, when they pop up uh, in another situation. But just bear in mind that they were powerful. They had ties within the city or within the city of Jerusalem. And they had ties outside. And so powerful, powerful people. This was, no, this was a powerful opposition against them. So the scene there is sent. Now... Uh, Nehemiah begins rather quietly for three days. We don't know what he did for those three days. We suspect he must have met with some officials in Jerusalem and some folks. All that doesn't really say, but it says he went into Jerusalem, was there for three days. Then he arose in the night, seemingly after those three days, and he arrived, goes in the night with just a few people uh, with him, uh, and, 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 but, but he tells no one what he's doing. And, and he just goes around these various gates. And he goes outside the walls as well because he has to come back in. And he observes and scopes out the situation that's before him. Just him. Just, you can just get a sense that he's, he's sizing it up. He's scouting it out. He's mulling it over in his mind what it is we're going to have to do. And then he comes, as you'll see, and he calls the people to work. He calls the people to work. Notice uh, verse 16. Uh, he says... Um, And the officials didn't know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. So in order to get the walls rebuilt, this isn't to surprise us. Uh, Not only did they need to pray, but they needed to work. Somebody had to lift a stone, lift a beam, and rebuild this. But it's fascinating to me always that God calls us to work. And it's not surprising because everybody has, but I mean, just this sense that he does, because he really doesn't need us, because he's God. When, when Paul uh, is speaking about Jesus to a group of philosophers in Athens, he speaks of God like this. He says, God isn't like us. He doesn't need anything. He doesn't need anything from us at all. And we think about that. We think about all that God has done. Of course, he's created all that is. And we think about the Red, Red Sea incident. He needed no help from Moses, really, or the Israelites to, to, to open the Red Sea that they would go through it. He didn't need any help. When you think about the walls around Jericho when Joshua and the guys were there, he just needed a shout from them, but you realize he probably didn't really need that. Right? Uh, uh, my dear friend, I love Jehoshaphat in the Bible, and, um, and, 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 and he was with a bunch of, of women and children, essentially, with his army. And he had enemies on every corner. And, and God said, sing. And they sang, and the enemies were defeated. He didn't really need them for that. In fact, 
if you read through various passages of scripture, but two on my mind at the moment are Isaiah 44 and Isaiah 46, where, where, where God actually mocks all the idols of the world because he essentially says they can't do anything at all. And he mocks them by saying things like this. Think about this. A silversmith and a craftsman, they, they take bronze and melt it. They, they take wood and cut it from a tree. And they take that same wood and they, they build a house with it. Or they use it for a flame to bake their bread. Oh, and they build a god too with it, you know. They build a god with it. And, and he's saying, isn't that silly that we make gods that we worship? And he says, no wonder they can't hear you. No wonder they can't talk to you. No wonder you have to carry them around. No wonder they can't save you. You made them. They're not even as powerful as you. And so God says, but you know, I am the Lord. I am God. I don't need you. You need me. I hear you. I speak to you. I act on your behalf. Why won't you worship me? And, and therefore, I find work astonishing. Uh, if I were God, I think I would just do it myself. But, but you see, he doesn't. He calls us to work. And, and, and we know of this work even from the Garden uh, of Eden. You see, we're created in the image of God. He works. We work. Uh, we do things. J.I. Packer uh, um, defines work like this. This has always been a helpful definition to me. He says, work means any exertion of effort that aims at producing a new state of affairs. So, so work means uh, any exertion, any we do, of effort that aims, has a purpose and a will, at producing a new state of affairs. That's a bit British, because that's Packer. But, but this new state of affairs to change things with a hope, if it's good work, of improving things. Making things better, life better, a situation better, a city better, an economy better, if you will. Life better for people and under God, that which is pleasing to him. That's the sense of work, the sense of good work. Not all work is good. Some work is evil. Some is aimed to change the state of affairs in a way that's bad. Sometimes it just happens that way. That wasn't our intention. But that's the centrally of work. That's what we're workers. And we're workers because we're created in the image of God. Work is good to do. Good work is good to do. That is work that has at its intent uh, to help to do that which is good, that which is biblically right, pleasing to God ultimately, and with the motive, this is the thing that gets us most of the time, and with the motive that God be glorified. That's the sense of good work. This was good work that Nehemiah calls his people to do. He said, this is a good work that we're to do. Why? Because it's pleasing to God. It's biblically right for him to do. He's called us to this work. And we're doing it for his glory. And we find, of course, that God has, has made us 
to work. And, and these passages are familiar to you from Genesis 1. So God created, verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, and every living thing that moves on the earth, and, and so forth and so on. And then in chapter 2, in verse 15, uh, we read this concerning Adam. The Lord God took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Um, and, and that's what he was to do. He was to work it, to work it and keep it. So work, you see, is inherent in us. When I was looking for synonyms for inherent, because I wasn't sure I liked that word. It was inherent in us. One of the synonyms was inbuilt. I never heard that word before, but I like it. Inbuilt. It, it's built into us to work. I know you wonder about your 14-year-olds, whether they really, whether it's really true, or perhaps about yourself when you were 14. But it's really true that it's inbuilt, that we're not happy, that we're not contented without real work to make an effort aimed to change, to improve a particular situation, a particular state of affairs. That's who we are. There's a movie some of you may have watched. It's called It's called Return to Me. That's irrelevant. I won't give you the plot. But one of the, one of the situations in the movie is this old man. He's probably my age. I think he's way older. But anyway, this older man, and he, 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 he owns um, a, a, a restaurant. And he's outside the restaurant late at night after everybody leaves. No, everyone's gone, and he's sweeping up. He's sweeping up the sidewalk. Um, his granddaughter looks, peers down, because they live above the restaurant, peers down at him and says, come on, stop that, go to bed, stop working. And she, he looks up at her with this wonderful line that's impressed me. And he said, no, 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 no. I'm blessed with work. And I go, yeah. Created in the image of God, who rested from his work on the seventh day, from his work on the seventh day, we are in his image. It is for us to be blessed with work. And we know that. We know that when we have good work, we know that when we have satisfying work, we know that when we're doing something, we have the aim, we're, we're aiming at, we're willing, we're purposing to change a state of affairs in some way, small way perhaps, but some way. And again, the people who really are blessed with work get even the smallest aspect of that. It was the restaurant owner sweeping up with joy because this even was important in the whole enterprise. So regardless of how big or small that work is, to be blessed with it. That's what it means, really, to be human. That in the Garden of Eden, Adam was charged with overseeing. And over time, as children would be born, and so forth and so on, that, that, that this place, this Eden, would be built and it would be built in such a way that human beings within it could flourish. And each one of them taking a part. And each one of them building. And each one of them working in such a way that would 
improve and help so that human beings could flourish and God would be glorified. I mean, you get this great sense of community. Isn't that what we all long for? Isn't that what people talk about? I want this sense of community. Well, this sense of community, this sense of being together and working really together. And so we realize that human beings have this rhythm, really, that God has given to us of work and rest. We can see it in our daily lives where we work. And by work, of course, much, if not most, if not all for some, is outside of the marketplace. So, so don't have that in your mind only. But have in your mind that which contributes, that which changes the situation, that which you willfully see, I'm contributing here in this or this person's life or this situation, whatever that may be. And so we see all kinds of, of work, shoveling snow, for people who live in places where it snows, um, uh, for shoveling snow, for mowing the lawn, um, for, for cooking meals, for raising children, uh, all that good work for making house repairs or hiring someone to make house repairs, uh, for making house repairs, whatever that is, that's good work, you see. That's work that we're, we're doing. We're willing and purposing. And, and we see an end result where something has been changed and hopefully for the good. I'll never forget, my dad always taught me as a kid. I've shared this before. He's not here today, but uh, he's, he's all right. But, uh, but he always taught me. He said, wherever you go, whatever you do, make it better. Whatever it is, wherever you go, improve the situation and the circumstance. And don't tell him I said this. But I always say he's the most contented man I've ever known. And he's contented because he sees improvement in the smallest areas. He could be content mowing the lawn and looking out and, and saying, wow. You know? And as some of you know, he cross-stitches now. He's 96. He cross-stitches now. And that's his work. And so every time I see him, he says, look, I made it this far on this. I mean, forgive me for the personal illustration. But that's the sense of knowing good work and being satisfied in it. Knowing that you're created in the image of God. Sorry, kids. I know I've just given the lecture every, every, your mom and dad have been giving you to, since you've been born. But, but it's true. You see, it really is true. Um, it's good, really good work. But we have this, this rhythm of work and rest that we have to observe. And we, we see it in our lives. Uh, we go to bed each night to rest, to sleep. That's rest, you see. And there's a sense, if I could just put this in your minds. I'm not a very good sleeper. But, but there's a sense in which that sleep is worship as believers. That sleep is worship. Because what you're doing when you go to sleep is you're saying, no one needs me. Why? While I'm sleeping. Why? Because God is here. I trust him. You know? If he needs me, he'll wake me up in the middle of the night and I'll get involved in something. But, 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 but that sleep time, you see, put it in your mind to worship. I'm... Lord, you've called me through this day. Lord, you've kept me active during this day. Maybe a bit more than I wanted. But God, you've kept me active during this day. You've given me good work to do. I'm tired. And now I trust that as I sleep, you'll get others to do it. Or you will take care of it yourself. It's that sense of worship. And then one day in seven, of course, we're to rest. That's this work and rest. I know I'm a bit beyond Nehemiah here. But work and rest kind of rhythm. So that we work six days. We really should work six days. Aim purposefully to work six days at something. 
which we're made for. And work six days, even perhaps in our leisure, but work six days, and then take a day to rest. Not to sleep the day, but that rest, what refreshes us, is worship. To make sure we worship. To make sure we pause at every moment of that day, unlike the other days, but make sure we set that day apart. No matter what else we're doing, we're certainly worshiping, gathering together. We need it. And then we're, we're setting our sights upon God so that we get, he's got it. We are not working. He's got it. And that's real rest. Sleep is an image of that, is a illustration of that. Worship is the reality of it. As we come and consciously acknowledge God. He's got this. As many have lived by that expression. He's got this. All right? And so, so anyway, Nehemiah is working. Uh, I don't know where I am now with any of this. That was all. If you read the second service people, you tell them what I just said because I may not tell them that. Uh, but anyway, um, so, so Nehemiah is, 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 is working here and it's, it's good work and it's work that's been, here's an expression I never liked as a kid. So kids, pardon me, you probably don't like this either. Bathed in prayer. I don't know why I didn't like that, but, but I, I like it now that I'm old. Bathed, it was bathed in prayer. Maybe I get it better. That, that, that it was in, that people prayed this through because as we've said, for Nehemiah praying is the power behind the means that God uses to get his work done. Praying is the power behind the means that God uses to get his work done. Because you see, praying, when we pray, it means we're dependent. When we're praying, it means that we realize that this task before us is bigger than we could ever accomplish. And we are inadequate for it. And so that's the sense of praying. When we don't pray, you see, there's a sense in which we say, I got this. I'm fine. When we do pray, we're saying, I don't have this. Please, God, help me in the midst of this. We saw Nehemiah do it. It's an illustration for us, an example of a godly man for us to follow, to pray in, in, all, that, in all that we do for the good work that we do. To pray that God would lead us in good work, work that's pleasing to him, and that he would form in us the right motive. That motive being that it's for his glory. You know what the scripture says. And whatever we do, whether we eat or drink, or word or deed, if I can combine two verses together, we're to do it all to the glory of God. That's the motive. Now, it's very often that we can do work that is, is good work, work that isn't immoral, if you will, Work that is pleasing to the Lord, but with the wrong motive. That is, without even thinking about his glory or desiring to be glorified ourselves. I smile. Uh, recently, some of you know Jerry Bridges. Uh, forgive my references to him now that he's deceased. But now I can quote him more. I was teasing his wife about that because she knows my line. But uh, and, uh, it's easier to quote those who are deceased. And uh, so now I'll quote him all the time, even more than I used to. But Jerry uh, Bridges... Um, uh, uh, quoted me a couple of times, but once without reference, except he used my name. And in a book called, I won't tell you the book, it's kind of embarrassing. So he, he quotes me in this book and he says, I have this friend, Bill. Thank you very much. So I have this friend, Bill, and every Sunday 
as he as he prepares for worship and preaching, he prays something like this. I don't know how Jerry quotes me in the book that this is how I do it, and this is how I told him. God, here's the deal. I know you should be glorified today, but I would really like to be. I know when people leave, they should be thinking of you, but really I want them to be thinking of me. And so we got about two hours for you to deal with that. And so, so could you work in me in such a way that at the end of the day, what pleases me only is that their eyes have been upon you. And could I, could I just give you that prayer for your days too? What I'm doing right now is no more sacred than what you should be doing in your job. And what you're doing is jo- in your job is sacred to the degree that you say to God, glorify yourself in my sweeping. Glorify yourself in my teaching. Glorify yourself in my fixing this car. Glorify my, yourself in making these meals as I make these meals for my family. Whatever that is that you're doing, have in your mind, God, throughout this day, glorify yourself so that at the end of the day, I can look back. You know the verse in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, may they see your good works and do what? And glorify your Father who is in heaven. So that's the sense, you see, of this praying. And that was the praying that Nehemiah did. And that's the praying that they did. Um, and, and so then finally this. That Nehemiah gave them hope. Notice verse 17. He says, Then I said to them, You see the trouble we're in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. So he's calling them to work. And he lays out the situation. And he says, you know, we need to rebuild these walls so that, so that we may no longer suffer the derision, the criticism, the mocking of the neighbors that said this were to be living in the city of God. Verse 18. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been, late, that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. In other words, what Nehemiah did in that sentence may have taken him an hour. And he, he, he talked them through the situation. He talked them through all the way of the providence of him becoming as a Hebrew slave, this trusted position as cupbearer to the king. And he was just a slave. It, it could, the king could have killed him as looked at him. And, and, and yet he was there providentially. And he received a call from God to rebuild the walls. He had nothing, no wherewithal, no power, no authority, nothing at all in order to get that done. And so he prayed the power behind the means God would use to rebuild the walls. And he prayed and then providentially had opportunity and he had opportunity. He snuck in a quick prayer, you remember. And then he he gave his request to the king and it was granted. And he told them all of that. And he said, not only that, but the king agreed to finance it and to protect us while we're doing it. And, and, And you can just... Can't you just see the hope that that would build in this people? And then their words was, and they said to me, let us rise up and build. You know, and I think Nehemiah probably says, well, wait a minute. I've got some other instructions before you get going here. You know, just calm down. I know you're ready to go. And, and then verse, then the next line, and this is, this is translated differently in other versions. I'm reading out of the English standard version. I like this translation the best. So they strengthened their hands for the good works. 
Now you say, well, what in the world did they do? Did they do exercises? You know, did they do hand exercises? No, 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 I think they prayed. Because in chapter 6 and verse 9, we read this. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, oh God, strengthen my hands. That's a prayer. And so I think what they did is said, oh man, how are we going to do this? And so they prayed that God would strengthen them and give them the strength in order to work, in order to build, you see. To change this state of affairs in order to work. All right, now, obviously, we've been called to various kinds of work. Throughout the course of a day, uh, we share some of that work, some of us do housework, some of us iron, some of us do laundry, some of us make meals, some of us uh, work in the marketplace, some of us do both. We have various callings and so forth and so on. We get that. But one that we share, and one that we talk a great deal about when we come together is the church, which sometimes means that people think we're not worried about all the other vocations and callings that we have, and that's not true. But one of the ones that we share together is that we're called, as Jesus said, and as Paul would reiterate, we're called to build up the church. That's what we're called, to, we're called to build up the church. Remember that passage I read out of Ephesians 4? I might look at it later if I have time. But that the apostle tells us that we're to build up one another. We're to build up the church. That doesn't mean we're to build facilities necessarily at all. It just means that we're to build up in one another the church. And so how do we do that? Well, of course, we pray. That we can change the state of affairs, change the situation. That is to say that more will come into the church to trust in Jesus. We're going to work to that end. We're going to purpose ourselves under God in prayer for his glory that more would come. And also the ones who are in the church that we build, we work in such a way to teach one another. To discipline one another, and by that I don't mean punish, but train, right? To train one another. Uh, And whatever means God gives us to train one another, to speak to one another the truth in love, uh, to build one another up. So we work at building up the church. You work at doing that. And so some teach Sunday school and some hold babies and some uh, uh, work with uh, youth and some with young adults and some pour into the lives of those who have been just married and, and some who've just had children and, 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 and some into uh, teaching adults and, and helping in marriages that are mature and, and some those who are older and some who are single and some who are widowed and some who uh, single, whatever it is, you see, and in whatever category, we're, we're to work to help. And that should be satisfying to us. If, if we're not building up and building into one another's lives, we simply won't be contented. We won't be satisfied. We won't be, sad to use this word, happy in any way, shape, or form. There'll be no joy, you see. The joy comes in the midst of that work, in the midst of that life which God gives to us. If we're independent and out there and outside the church, really, then, then there's, there's, there's no joy, you see. It's, it's, in the, it's in the community of all that we have together. 
And so we're to pray that God would strengthen our hands. We pray that God will enable us. You know, Jesus gives us this, this great commission that we're to make disciples of every nation. That's, that's our building of the wall, if you will. That's our gathering, making a, a safe place for people to gather to be the people of God. And, and so, so first of all, we have to be disciples, which means that's work. It's work under God. It's work to his glory, but it's effort, you see. And it must be purposeful. You can't simply spontaneously fly your way through the, through, through the Christian life. You have to think about it and plan for it. If you don't think about reading the Bible, you won't. If you don't think about praying and, and, and setting a time and doing all of that, you won't generally. Oh, you will when you, know, you need a parking place and all that or when you find out you're sick. But, 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 but you won't have this real time of praying. Purpose to do it. Will to do it. Make it your good work. I remember I had a seminary professor, missions professor, Christy Wilson. And I asked him one day, just, I said, so in all the things that you've done, how do you understand your primary work? What do you do? And without hesitation, he said, I pray. I said, no, 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 no. Like, you know, what do you do? And he said, no, 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 no. I, that's, that's my primary work. I may not spend most of my time consciously praying, but that's the work that I do. I pray. Because he says, if I don't pray, nothing else gets done. Not to the glory of God. I go, oh, you know, let me write that down. Um, my praying it's working, you see. So we, we work. It's work. We're exerting effort. We're aiming at changing the state of affairs. It's real work, praying for our children, for our marriages, for our growth in the faith, for others to come to know him, for the church itself to be built up in love. All of that, you see. We're praying. And so the question then, and I'll end with this, but the question is, do we have any hope really? Do we have any real hope that the church will be built? And I asked myself that question on Thursday, and I realized, oh, wait a minute, Sunday is Pentecost Sunday. I guess there's hope. I guess the Holy Spirit has come. And I guess since the Spirit of God has come, He's come. And I I read Acts 2 and I said, see, we have hope. Because He did it. Do you realize? In Acts 2, when the Holy Spirit came, there's a sense in which Acts 1-8 was fulfilled. That they were His witnesses throughout the whole world. Why? Because on that day, the whole world was represented. But what was, at least the known world, what was fantastic and just beyond even thought, that they just simply began to speak of the great things of God. And whatever the miracle was there, however you want to do that, whether you want to say that they were speaking in the real languages of these people, whether you were saying that they were heard in the real languages of these people, whatever the miracle was there, you can't deny it was awesome. And here it was, they, these people from all over the world. And he said, see, 
When the Spirit comes, this is what you should expect. That all kinds of people will come. You go. You bring them. All kinds of people. And that's the great hope you see. The Spirit has come. Jesus said, Build my church. And the gates of hell, or the gates of Haiti, however you want to translate that, will not prevail against it. In other words, whatever the gates of hell is, there's some debate about that, whatever that is, don't worry. When I hear gates of hell, I think that's the worst thing, right? How could you say you have an enemy of any kind worse than the gates of hell? Uh, But what we know is that the gates of hell could not keep Jesus. He busted through. Death can't win, nor the condemnation that death signifies. It didn't win with Jesus. It won't prevail with all his people. So can we have confidence? (laughs) You better believe it. And when we hear that, it should cause us to say, let's build, let's get going. Let's keep telling and teaching and praying, discipling. Let's keep doing it. Nothing can really stop us. And Nehemiah knew that. And so when the enemies came against him, he replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we, his servants, will arise and build and you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. And so when enemies come against us, when Satan comes against us, we can tell them the same thing, that the God of heaven will make us prosper and we, his servants, will arise and build and you can't stop us. That's just true. That's just true. Let me leave you with this quote. Um, might be apropos in the days in which we live. Helpful. Uh, Kathy Keller, uh, you, might remember, you might take note of the last name, Keller. She is the wife of Tim Keller, um, and, uh, an author and uh, speaker in her own right, but not as well known. Concerning this particular portion of scripture in Nehemiah, she said this. She said, God's people do not need to be powerful culturally or in power politically to be obedient to him and accomplish his purposes in the world. Right? As Americans, we're often troubled when we're not in power culturally or politically. Nehemiah had no power. Look what happened. God's people do not need to be powerful culturally or in power politically to be obedient to him and accomplish his purposes in the world. All we need to glorify him and join the great sweep of redemptive history is to be grateful to the one who has called them by his own name. That's Jesus, by the way. May we not do less than Nehemiah because we're called by the one who is greater than Nehemiah. And he will accomplish it. You may want a great America. I don't know that. It would be wonderful. We're called to build the church together. And the church will be built. Let's pray, Father. Pray for me, for us. That you would enable us to 
be obedient to you by your spirit and work that our prayers may be answered, that you would be glorified. Thank you for the great hope that we have, the certain hope that we have, that the church will be built no matter what else happens around us. Oh God, we would love to live in a country where we can live freely and express our beliefs. We know that hasn't been true, though for most Christians throughout history, and seems to be coming less true for us. And so we pray if it does become less true for us, that you would enable us, regardless, to be obedient, to keep the main thing the main thing, that you would be glorified as your church is built. This we pray in Jesus' name.